It's the hardest passage of all, one that seems to defy understanding. Avraham and Sarah have waited years for a child. God has promised them repeatedly that they would have many descendants, as many as the stars of the sky, the dust of the earth, the sand grains on the seashore. They wait. No child comes. Sarah, in despair, suggests that Avram should have a child by her handmaid, Hagar. He does. Ishmael is born. Yet God tells Avraham, this is not the one. By now, Sarah is old, postmenopausal, unable by any natural means to have a child. Angels come, and again they promise a child. Sarah laughs. But a year later, Yitzchak is born. Sarah's joy is almost heartbreaking. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Avram that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And then come the fateful words. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Yitzchak, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'll tell you about. The rest of the story is familiar. Abraham takes Yitzchak together. They journey for three days to the mountain. Avraham builds an altar, gathers wood, binds his son, and lifts the knife. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Avraham, Avraham, here I am, he replied. Don't lay a hand on the boy, says the angel. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you'll fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. The trial is over. It's the climax of Avram's life, the supreme test of faith, a key moment in Jewish memory and self-definition. But it's deeply troubling. Why did God so nearly take away what he had given? Why did he put these two aged parents, Avram and Sarah, through so appalling a test? Why did Avram, who would earlier challenge God on the fate of Saddam, saying, shall the judge of all the earth not do justly, not protest against this cruel act against an innocent child? The standard interpretation given by all the commentators, classical and modern, is that Avram demonstrates his total love of God by being willing to sacrifice the most precious thing in his life, the child whom he'd been waiting for so many years. The Christian theologian Soren Kierkegaard wrote a powerful book about it, Fear and Trembling, in which he coined such ideas as the teleological suspension of the ethical, the idea that out of love of God we may do things that would normally be considered morally wrong. And also Kierkegaard used the idea of faith in the absurd. Avram trusted God to make the impossible possible. He believed he'd lose Isaac, but still keep him. For Kierkegaard, faith transcends reason. Harav Yosef Soloveitchik saw the binding as demonstrating that we must not always expect to be victorious. Sometimes we have to experience defeat. God tells man to withdraw from whatever man desires the most, said Rav Soloveitchik. All these interpretations are surely correct. They're part of our tradition. But I want to offer a quite different reading for one reason, namely throughout Tanakh, the gravest sin of all of his child sacrifice. The Torah and the prophets consistently regard it with horror. It's what pagans do. This is what the prophet Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, says about it. They've built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. 
And this is the prophet Micha. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Child sacrifice is what Mesha, king of Moab, does to get the gods to grant him victory over the Israelites. This is what the Torah says. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. That's what the Moabite king does, the, the idolater. So how can the Torah regard Abraham's supreme achievement that he was willing to do what the worst of idolaters do? The fact that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son would seem to make him, in terms of Tanakh, considered as a whole, no better than a worshipper of Baal or Moloch or the pagan king of Moab. This cannot be the only possible interpretation. There is another way of looking at the trial. And to do so, we have to consider an overriding theme of the Torah as a whole. Let's first assemble the evidence. First principle, God owns the land of Israel. That's why he can command the return of property to its original owners in the Jubilee year. The Torah says the land must not be sold in perpetuity because the land is mine and you are but temporary residents and my tenants. Second principle, God owns the children of Israel since he redeemed them from slavery. That's what the Israelites meant when they sing at the Red Sea, Adiavor, until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you have acquired, Amzukanita, pass by. Because God owns the Israelites, they cannot be turned into permanent slaves owned by someone else. Says the Torah, because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. Third principle, God is the ultimate owner of all that exists. That's why we have to make a blessing, a bracha, over everything we enjoy. Rav Yehuda said in the name of Shmuel, to enjoy anything of this world without first reciting a blessing is like making personal use of consecrated things, since it says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Rav Levi contrasted two texts. One says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the other says the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the children of men. Said Rav Levi, there is no contradiction. One case it refers to before you make a bracha, a blessing, and the other one refers to after a blessing. What the Gemara is telling us that is that all things belong to God, and we have to acknowledge this before we make personal use of anything. That's what a blessing is, acknowledging that all we have, all we enjoy, is from God. All these principles are the jurisprudential basis of Jewish law. God rules by right, not by might. God created the universe, therefore God is the ultimate owner of the universe. The legal term for this is the law of eminent domain, which means the ultimate owner is the sovereign power. And therefore, God is entitled as owner of the universe to prescribe the conditions under which we may benefit from the universe. It's to establish this legal fact, not to tell us about the physics of co or cosmology of the Big Bang, that the Torah begins with the story of creation. 
And this carries special depth and resonance for the Jewish people, since in their case, God is not just as he is for all humankind, creator and sustainer of the universe. He's also for us, the God of history, who redeemed our ancestors from slavery and gave them a land that originally belonged to someone else, the seven nations. God is sovereign of the universe. And in a special sense, he's Israel's only ultimate king, the sole source of their laws. That's the significance of the book of Exodus. So all the key narratives of the Torah are to teach us that God is the ultimate owner of all. And now let's turn to Abraham and Isaac. In the ancient world, up to and including the Roman Empire, children were considered the legal property of their parents. They had no rights. They weren't legal personalities in themselves. The Romans called this the principle of patria potestas, which meant that a father could do whatever he wished with his child, including putting him to death. Infanticide was well known in antiquity. In fact, it's even been defended in our time by the Harvard philosopher Peter Singer in the case of severely handicapped children. And infanticide, or intended infanticide, is how the famous story of Oedipus begins, with his father Laius leaving him to die. It is this principle of patria potestas that underlies the entire practice of child sacrifice, which was widespread throughout the pagan world. The Torah is horrified by child sacrifice, which it sees as the worst of all sins. It therefore seeks to establish in the case of children what it establishes in the case of the universe as a whole and the land of Israel and the people of Israel. We do not own our children. God does. We are merely their guardians on God's behalf. Now, how do you establish that principle? only by the most dramatic event. Because this really was a revolution, unprecedented, even un unintelligible in the ancient world. And that is what the story of the binding of Isaac is about. Isaac belongs neither to Avram nor Sarah. Isaac, Yitzchak, belongs to God. All children belong to God. Parents do not own their children. The relationship of parent to child is one of guardianship only. God doesn't want Avraham to sacrifice his child. God wants Avraham to renounce ownership in his child. And that's what the angel means when it calls to Avraham telling him to stop saying, you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. In other words, Avraham was willing to give him back to God. The binding of Isaac is a polemic against and a rejection of the principle of patria potestas, the idea universal to all pagan cultures that children are the property of their parents. Seen in this light, the binding of Isaac is now consistent with all the other foundational narratives of the Torah, the creation of the universe, the liberation of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, because all of those were about showing that God is the ultimate owner. And the rest of the narrative also makes sense. God had to show Avram and Sarah that their child was not naturally theirs because Yitzchak's birth wasn't natural at all. It only took place after Sarah could no longer naturally conceive. The story of the first Jewish child establishes a principle that applies to all Jewish children. 
God creates legal space between parent and child. Because only when that space exists, do children have the room to grow as independent individuals. The Torah ultimately seeks to abolish all relationships built on dominance and submission. That's why it dislikes slavery and makes it within Israel a temporary condition rather than a permanent fate. That is why it seeks to protect children from parents who are overbearing or worse. Abraham, I said in last week's study, was chosen to be the role model for all time of what it is to be and of a parent. And we now see that the binding of Isaac is the consummation of that story. A parent is one who knows he or she does not own their child. Shabbat Shalom.